Events of the past 12 months have once again highlighted that Australia still has a long way to go when it comes to our relationship with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. 20 years on from the Reconciliation March of 2000, the path to reconciliation is still one that as a nation, we have a long way to travel. In that spirit of reconciliation, I would like to offer my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, both past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. So hello everyone and welcome to this episode of the UX Australia podcast. I am joined today by Crystal Higgins. Crystal, welcome. Hi, thanks. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you. Now, you are in Sydney and you are, like me, in the midst of uh, a lockdown. How is that treating you? Uh, you know, I, I can't really complain. I have access to the outdoors and all that. I would love to be able to have more access and do more things. Uh, but right now, I'm just sort of hunkering down in my apartment and going for long walks whenever I get a break from uh, probably a few too many video calls that happen during the day. But, you know, I think, um, I think I'm holding and holding up all right. Are you looking forward to traveling? I really am. I think it, the start of 2020 offered me a bit of a break. I was traveling a bit too much. Um, mm. Now I think I am ready to travel again and really? maybe get out of the state of New South Wales once or twice. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I, I, I think back to um, it was right before, uh, I think it must have been February 9 last year, um, mm. and uh, we were in... Uh, San Francisco um, and California more broadly um, and thinking, you know, maybe maybe travelling wasn't such a great idea. Um, it was just, just bubbling to the surface and we came home and it was maybe a week later that, you know, things started to close down. I think it was we, we sort of stopped working in the studio around then and it's, you know, it's gone downhill from there. And I've taken one flight on a plane in the 18 months since, which is unusual for me. Wow, that is a big change. Uh, we must have been in San Francisco about the same time. I was coming back from a trip there in uh, mm. early March of last year. And yeah, okay. as we as we pulled up, uh, I remember there were some crew that came on board before letting us disembark and everyone was wondering, is it one of these, you know, is it a case or something like that? I think it turned out mm. to be maintenance or something, but it was, <laughs> it kind of showed that it was on the cusp of that time. It was very close. Um, and I know there were um, active cases in places like Aspen and, um, and that sort of uh, area you know, Australians go over and ski in places like Aspen and Vale um, during that season to escape the summer heat. And I know a bunch of them brought it back. So I think we were lucky. Um, it was good to be able to catch up with those friends. But I, I do miss that opportunity to travel and actually visit family, visit friends overseas. Yeah. What's the first place you'll you'll go to once you can travel again? Actually, I, I, I got asked that the other day, um, but it would it would be America. Um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, um, my wife, Jana, and I would, would go to America to visit family. 
um, that's been really hard. She's American. She's from Iowa. Um, and not being able to see those people has been really difficult. So I think that would be the first thing that we would do. Um, aside from that, I would love to get back over to Europe. Watching the Tour de France over the last few weeks, it's been, um, you know, I've, I've, I've been envious of the people who've been able to be there in France for the, for the Tour de France, but one day. That sounds like a good plan. You've got it all. You've got it all written out. So that's kind of what you need to get you through this stuff, yes. right? Yes. Yes. But look, we could we could talk about the pandemic uh, for a long, long time, and I, I, I continue <laughs> to do so. But let's let's touch on something else instead. You have uh, written a book on the topic. You've spoken a lot about the topic. Why is onboarding such a big deal? Why Why is it so important? Well, onboarding, it kind of captured my attention because it's it's when you really have to do the bulk of the work of helping shape people's mental models, mm. helping them understand and grasp the space. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of hard work that has to happen once people are into a product or into a service and kind of have used it a few times. Mm. Um, but the biggest problem is just kind of, you know, it's about education and helping teach people and helping people learn and there's a lot of rich opportunity in there, yet not a lot of us get that right because it's very challenging to go from our mindset of expertise and all of that and to suddenly try to come into it with a blank slate and, and think about, okay, how, how does someone who's never interacted with this before perceiving this? Mm. And so I think it's a, a great design challenge and also a great business opportunity if if you can do it well, you can scale to more audiences because you'll design something that more people can understand. Um, and you can also keep them for longer because if people are confused there or get the wrong impression about things, they're not going to stick around or do the things that add value. Yeah. I've seen it done well in some games um, mm -hmm. I've seen it like, you know, sort of these sort of big rich environments where they go to a lot of like have clearly gone to a lot of effort to introduce you to the game world as well as the game mechanics so that you can wrap your head around not only what you can do and where you can do it but how you can do it the tools and stuff that are available um do you, like do you have a favorite example of someone who's done it well well, I think I think games are always a great example. You bring that up. Um, you know, I was uh, Untitled Goose Game has a great example of this kind of sense of letting people get into a sort of uh, smaller version of the larger world that they might start interacting with. And then very seamlessly, as you start to do certain things, the world opens up. And it's a, it's a great contrast to things where you might get a game that's like, this is the tutorial part and we yes. will talk you through the tutorial. Yeah. Um, in products, I think it's harder in products because you... You don't have, and that's why it's harder to point to, you know, one canonically good example, because you don't have one kind of idea of where people should go. I think in games, yeah. you can have multiplayer and multi-story arcs and all of that. Um, but in products, you have so many different reasons and motivations. People aren't necessarily coming to play your product, right? They're coming sure. to get some stuff done. Yep. Um, so you know, I've seen um, one one example that sticks out as being pretty good is the app 
um, iPad app paper um, yes. by WeSignals. And, yes. you know, yeah, yeah, they, they did a really good approach because they kind of took a multi-pronged approach, right? You kind of get into the product. It's got a, uh, you can create a sketchbook or it has a demo sketchbook. A demo sketchbook is kind of this rich, cool thing that lets you, uh, you can see sample sketches. You can build off of it. A little help mm. video will play in the upper right corner. You can, yep. you know, toss it away. Anyways, so they they take a very a diverse approach to letting people coming from different situations get in and sort of get started the way that fits where they're at. It's also an environment that they allow you to just get in there and muck around with it mm. without there being, but there's not much danger in that. Um, you know, like you can, when you do first get into it, there are some easy access to a blank page and some tools and, um, it's easy to make a mark on a page and sort of start to wrap your head around how the thing works. But those um, that example sketchbook also gives you a good feel for what's possible, which is also one of the things that's sort of good onboarding, you know, not only where to start, but that sense of potential is a really critical part as well, I find. Absolutely. And, and you kind of strike on an important key there. I, I think sometimes the wrong onboarding approach can be us trying to guess how to tell someone what's possible. So, you know, we come up with instructions or slideshows or things like that. And we say like, mm. you can do this, you can do that. But people want to feel like they're part of that discovery. They want to be helped and like, you need to help them, but mm. making it kind of feel more open and like they're discovering this naturally is much better than just trying to like, guess at the right way to explain all the things that somebody needs to do. In fact, you reminded me that another example, it's kind of like that that paper mm. sketchbook example is Notion, um, the workspace tool. Uh, you yeah, kind of yeah. get in there, you've got sample projects uh, that you can just build off of. You can wipe out their example text in there and, um, you know, build on it. But the example text in a new document kind of just hints at the kinds of things you yeah, can use that document okay. to do. Yeah. I've, I've not used that one yet. There's a, a, a few people um, at MELD who are swearing by it and keep sort of recommending that I, I lay hands on it, but I'm, I'm yet to. Not that I'm resistant, but I've, I'm, I'm yet to. I think it's, you know, it's also hard. People, um, you need to be in the right space to shift productivity tools too. You sure. know, it's it's a big change. You've got to change a workflow to adapt. I get it. Like I, yeah. I'm, I'm still stuck in my standards as well. Yeah, it's fair enough. When it goes wrong it feels like it's the sort of thing that can very quickly turn somebody off a product is that fair to say yeah absolutely look there are some if the overall value of your product is so big um that people there there will be cases where you might get away with some of uh you know yeah. a few speed bumps in the path if mm. if people really motivated that said that takes a lot of effort to make sure like it's super clear to someone new that this is going to give them the best value and help them realize sure. that quickly so most yeah. of us have to work on reducing that friction and yeah. and that usually comes down to not asking for so many commitments early on um mm -hmm. you know trying to avoid situations where the first thing a new user might interact with is a captcha sort of deal you know yeah, i think yeah. 
think a lot of people don't think through these small roadblocks that are kind of getting in the way. Yeah, I think um, the the only services or the only sort of organisations that really get away with that kind of early frustration are, are government services where you don't really have much choice. Um, <laughs> if, if you want access to the service, you're just going to have to work your way through it and the frustrations are just part of the territory. But for most commercial organisations and commercial services, I think they lose a lot of people early for reasons that are entirely avoidable. Absolutely. And sometimes it's just, you know, using words that confuse people and make them think that they're in the wrong place or in the wrong flow or, uh, you know, making assumptions like, oh, they will have a credit card and, you know, they go through a payment flow and it turns out like you don't accept, you know, bank payments. So uh, I think there's a lot of these. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of these small moments of friction we have to think about. Do we, uh, to design a good onboarding experience does it require different tools a different mindset are you are you approaching it from a different perspective than other parts of the design exercise um yes and no i think i think it's important to you know keep the biggest thing that it requires is, is making sure we're always keeping track somewhere of the assumptions that we're making. And assumptions okay. come in all forms, like the words that people use. Oh, we assume that people use this internal language because new users get exposed to those assumptions in the big scale, right? You you think everyone knows what this feature name is, but no one understands it, so they don't use it, and, and then they leave, that sort of deal. Mm. So that's a big thing. Um, also a mindset, I would say maybe as of four years ago, it was a new mindset, but I think it's catching on, is just treating onboarding as a journey. Like it's, it's part of the user journey, but it in itself, it also is kind of like a focused area of that journey. Um, yep. It's not just the first run experience or one-time sort of deal. It's not just the sign-up flow. It's kind mm. of a bunch of interconnected points because learning is a journey, right? And so as people adapt yes. to something new or understand something new, we have to we have to understand it needs to be a bit more flexible than just a mm. one-time deal. And it's not as sort of um, concrete as an unboxing experience, is it? No, unboxing definitely helps with onboarding, yes. Um, yes. and and you know the physicality of it can can add to that motivation of like getting through and getting the most of a product. But indeed, it's it's one small part of that. Like you actually mm -hmm. have to be able to use this thing and integrate it into your life, whatever you know this thing yeah. is. Whatever after is. that point, yeah, yeah. And it's I mean, it, depending on how you define it, it's not. Like it, it doesn't have a, a clear endpoint. It's not as though onboarding has now been completed in most instances. It's a it's a fairly blurry line as somebody uses more um, uses more often, takes advantage of extra features. Um, it's it's quite a sort of like it bleeds quite naturally um, into use. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I try to define the end point of onboarding is when people get to a state of core use, but that, like you're saying, that line is, is a really, there's no one single moment at which every single user, you know, tips over into being a core user. Um, it is, it is like you, you mentioned, kind of a phased or a blended um, sort of deal. And it's why, you know, I, you were right to use games um, that, mm. that do this because like, the good games show that gradual immersion into a larger space. And it's, it's not, you know, it's not a checklist that's happened somewhere. Um, maybe there's a checklist on the back end that, you know, it's just really rich and, and um, diverse what's being tracked, but it's definitely mm. not like one of those checklists you get when you just sign up for a new service and they tell you one, two, three, four, do these things and you're all set yeah. kind of deal. It's um, I know most services that we're sort of talking about and, and a lot of services and, and, and games are a, a, another good example, but I'm thinking more of um, various social media and various sort of social services where the service itself changes over time. Um, so not just my use of the service changes over time, but as as the volume of people using it grows and those network effects take start to take hold and you get um, popular users who, you know, have hundreds of thousands or millions of people following them, the exercise of joining actually needs to change as well. Um, and it's doesn't often seem to be something that organisations think through about their service. They sort of continue to treat onboarding as though it was, you know, back when 100 users or 100 followers was a big deal. And here they are orders of magnitude bigger and they're not, they're not dealing with that aspect of it. Yes, um, it's a it's a very fascinating one. It's it kind of you know it goes back to onboarding as this journey because it has to be organic for these sorts of you have to treat it as something that needs to kind of grow and and evolve as your product scales and the mm. people in it scale. And you're absolutely right. Like the things that you know a social media platform might need to onboard people to. I mean, one, it's trying to decrease a sense of intimidation. Like, how am I supposed to contribute to this space? Yes. Um, um, and also, you know, uh, digital citizenship and things like that, because now you've got a high volume of, of content, but also, you know, it, opportunities to look at how do we leverage even the um, the user base that we already have to help with these new people um, and and try to, you know, use a little bit of almost social onboarding. Like, can, can we have people that are helping others in, in even an indirect way sort of do it? So, yeah, I think there is a kind of desire to want onboarding be a set it and forget it sort of implementation. Yes. But yes. it's like a product, right? You can't just build your product and then you forget about it. It's, it's all part of that. Yeah, I know, like, and this has been a practice for a long time, um, the idea that to help with onboarding, you actually set up an external environment, a separate community, um, you know, a, a user group or a user community. And I'm thinking, you know, my first involvement with these sorts of things was in the mid-90s with, um, you know, Adobe and Quark products where we had 
um, you know, online support communities in CompuServe and, and this kind of thing. Um, but that, that idea that a new user can get introduced to the product through this external mechanism rather than internal mechanisms. Is that like, is, is that still a practice? Do we still see that kind of thing going on? I think we do, perhaps in in less like in, less formal ways. So, so for one, in B two B, we definitely, you know, there are definitely products and companies that might set up like specialized customer um, support groups or mm-hmm. contacts for you know yep. their big clients to kind of work with. Um, but you know, if we look at some of the collaborative tools like Figma, for example, yes. Figma's kind of a, a great onboarding environment maybe maybe not like the one that they've designed but if you mm. happen to be invited into a file where like core figma users are kind of already in there you can almost observe what they're doing you can ask them questions like hey mm-hmm. how did you do that um, and you start to you start to draw people in and kind of like make it a more accessible space for others yeah and it's it's providing more sort of dynamic and fluid responses to those early questions. Um, and then, you know, like this, there's a whole raft of issues around overcoming people's resident uh, reticence to actually ask what they think is almost certain to be a dumb question. Um, <laughs> you know, like those, those sorts of things. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm new here, but I got to ask, um, which is a, an interesting, an interesting dynamic that then goes on um, and again, coming back to that question of that community obviously didn't exist in the first place. Like it, it only became something that was valuable and supportive of new users because a group of users actually started to coalesce around that product. Yeah, yeah. I think there is kind of that, you know, intrinsic altruism that sometimes uh, folks also like to contribute back to the community and get more yes. folks involved. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it, it. I I've yet to see whether a company taking like a very explicit approach to create that space and define it and all that is actually the mm-hmm. best one, or if just giving the community the tools to you know, set up yeah. that space as you were talking about might actually yeah. be the best approach. Yeah. It's, it's an, an interesting challenge. And I know, you know, there are any number of uh, community managers out there who will be sort of nodding along and, and, and crying into their drink <laughs> at the same time um, with some of the challenges that occur around getting that sorts of things up and running. Um, but Crystal, it's been lovely talking to you. I can't wait to hear more about it at the conference. Um, we are always, always a privilege to talk to you and we look forward to seeing you in a few weeks' time. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been great to chat about this. We went all over uh, all over the place yes. in this conversation into many fun topics and I can't wait to chat about that better onboarding in a few weeks. Awesome. Thanks very much, Crystal. All right, thank you.